It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Untold Story podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Josh Crashour today, political analyst extraordinaire and writer. And Josh, we're talking a lot this week about 2024 as we start to kind of see some parts of it take shape. We're still obviously a long way out, but I want to just jump in and start by asking you about your thoughts with regard to Ron DeSantis, who we're starting to get some clarity that he'll he'll jump in at least file toward the end of next week well look this has been a good week for uh governor desantis he's finally going to announce i I think there was a lot of anxiety about why the governor was taking so long why he was letting a lot of uh, donald trump's attacks go unanswered he's lost a lot of ground in the polls over the last couple months but at the same time his trip to iowa was a success he got endorsements from some of the top legislative leaders in the state of Iowa, which is a hugely important state for for the governor. And he also had a message that is going to be crucial to his success in that, you know, he's the electable candidate. And and Donald Trump has been part of, as he put it, a culture of losing. And look, that's going to be the message you'll hear from the governor uh, when he announces uh, pretty soon. And it'll be the key argument, I, I believe, in the Republican primary. And uh, if, if, if the governor, if Governor DeSantis gets momentum and he's going to be focusing on early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, to get that momentum back, it's going to be focused on making uh, his candidacy seem like not just the conservative candidate in the field, but the electable Republican, especially when compared against Donald Trump. It's so interesting to watch the Trump DeSantis battle. I know some people have called it like King Kong and Godzilla um, because they're not afraid to go at each other. Trump obviously does it in the Trump manner. He said this week that Ron DeSantis um, needed a personality transplant and apparently those weren't available yet, unfortunately, something to that effect. And DeSantis, as you point out, is going after the former president and, and basically saying, that he's a loser, you know, that he's associated with losing. And we know that will get under the former president's skin, probably, and cause him to to come back. So with regard to this personality issue, how much has DeSantis done to diffuse that with his recent travel in Iowa, for example? Well, retail politics, going to diners, going to town halls, meeting voters face to face is a crucial part of any candidate's ability to do well in a presidential race. You, you've always heard the test of, do you want to have a beer with the uh, nominee more? Uh, which candidate more? So Ron DeSantis needs to pass that test. He did a pretty good job, I think, in Iowa, uh, going to Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, uh, doing those grip and grin events. But look, that's a weakness of his too. He's used to running a lot of ads. Florida's a big state. He doesn't have to do the kind of retail politics quite as much. Uh, in, in, in Florida, as a lot of other uh, governors or candidates have experience with. That said, like Trump was supposed to do a rally in, in Des Moines and he canceled. And Trump did not do in 2020 a whole lot of those small retail political events. Um, so the, look, there's an opportunity for Governor DeSantis to show his likable side to 
you know, meet with a lot of voters, talk to them one-on-one. That's the pathway for him to succeed uh, in the 2024 presidential race. It's, you know, the playbook is pretty simple for DeSantis. It's not going to be looking at the national numbers and figuring out a way to get catch up with Trump there. It's going to be spending day after day in Iowa, day after day in New Hampshire, going to diners, going to these small events and winning over a voter one, one day at a time and sparking an upset in those key early states. Yeah, that is so true. And Iowans, we say it every four years, but they really like to see people and a lot of candidates try to make it to every single district in in Iowa in order to to win. And people put so much time and money and effort into Iowa. And then sometimes it can peter out after that as well. We saw Ted Cruz, you know, had a slim win over Trump in Iowa. And, um, you know, it doesn't always translate into momentum going forward, but it's certainly really important. Um, You know, so he has DeSantis has picked up a bunch of endorsements in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, from, you know, state politicians. How much do those really matter, Josh? They matter. They're not determinative. Uh, If endorsements matter, Donald Trump wouldn't have been the nominee in 2016. He clearly did not have the most endorsements compared to folks like Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, Scott Walker, and so on. Look, it mattered when Donald Trump got uh, a lot more Republican congressmen in the state of Florida to support him over DeSantis. And it matters that Ron DeSantis has gotten two of the most powerful Republicans in the state legislature in the state of Iowa to to endorse his candidacy. Um, Look, I, I think the inside game only will be crucial as long as DeSantis can also play that outside game. He needs to win over those endor- endorsees. He needs to get people, uh, lawmakers, state legislators, all the all the politicos in those states to support him. But he also needs to make the case to voters. And, and that's what's going to be uh, tested when he makes his official announcement sometime soon. You know, what do you think the potential when you look at these numbers right now, obviously, the former president, Donald Trump, is in very good shape in terms of national numbers, which we all say, you know, They don't really matter that much at this point, but certainly they give him a lot of confidence as he looks at the field. What do you think are the potential hurdles for that? And do you think that we end up with a Biden-Trump matchup in the end? What does your gut tell you? That's the most likely scenario. My my gut has actually said for a while that voters are not overall not excited about two presidents, one or two former pre- or president and a former president, one over 80, one almost 80 to run yeah. uh, in 2024. But look, that's the way things are headed, because uh, it seems like uh, certainly among the Democrats, that's what everyone is kind of pushing upon the party for Biden to run for a second term and to keep everyone united uh, behind him. You know, I think the Republican field, uh, it looked, looked certainly looked a lot more volatile a few months ago. Donald Trump is at a good two or three months. But look, he, he that, that town hall he did and some of the uh, comments on Truth Social, those are the types of things that can remind voters on the Republican side why they may want someone new and different in 2024. So there's a lot of volatility out there. And, and I think we're going to see a, at least some surprises along the way to 2024. The Untold Story continues right after this. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. So, you know, anyone who wants to win the presidency obviously has to look at a handful of states where where it matters. And um, there was an interesting piece this week about shifting in religious groups, uh, which which basically showed that there has been a, a drop in 
faithfulness, I guess, or people who consider themselves people of faith in some pretty interesting places in Wisconsin and Michigan and in Pennsylvania. What do you think the impact of that is on, on a presidential race? Boy, that was a fascinating analysis by, by the Pew Research Center that really our politics are, are divided along religious and, 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 and yeah. you know, faithfulness lines. Uh, if, if you're secular, you're much more likely to be a Democrat. If you're if you go to church or synagogue at least like once a month, you're much more likely to be a Republican. The, the one quirk in the numbers is that Donald Trump in 2016 was actually able to win a critical mass of some of the less religious voters, people who frankly didn't go to church and also didn't participate a whole lot in the political process. They were just distrustful of institutions writ large. And that's how he won in 2016, by getting some people who voted for Obama, that were secular, that, that just weren't real religious, but Trump spoke to them. There is an opportunity, especially in those Midwestern battleground states, for the, you know, the winner of the next election is probably going to be determined by those same voters. And if Democrats can't speak to uh, religious voters, that's a problem. But, it, you know, it, it also Republicans have a chance uh, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or anyone else, to kind of pick off a lot of economically distressed voters who have uh, lost the faith but still may mm. vote Republican. And that's going to be a critical swing voting block in, in the next election. It's so interesting. Um, so you need the non-religious vote in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to win, right? Yeah, I mean, like, it, writ large, like, religious voters are conservative, less religious voters mostly Democratic, but there are some cross currents. There are some small slices of, of voters that kind of go against the grain. And those are going to be, especially the, those Midwestern states and like the ones you mentioned, Martha, that is going to decide, I think, the next election. So when you go back to what we were talking about initially, which is the uh, primary, I mean, yeah, the, the primary nomination process in that part of it uh, on the Republican side, the evangelical vote is very important. The Catholic vote is very important. Everyone was, I think, pretty surprised that former President Trump got the support of these evangelical groups. And every Republican who is considering running uh, that I've spoken to considers that that to be their lane. You know, if you say, where, what are you going to be able to do, whether it's Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, um, they feel like they can potentially move themselves up the list of Republican potential nominees by winning the support of these evangelical groups. Where do you where do you see them going, Josh? Well, look, in the primary, uh, keep an eye on Tim Scott, who is expected to announce his own presidential campaign shortly. He, I was with him in South Carolina. His entire message uh, is about faith and about his own personal faith and about his own personal story and how his, uh, you know, his, his religion and his belief allowed him to kind of overcome a whole lot of obstacles. It's a very inspiring story. It's mm -hmm. one that I think will play well uh, in these uh, in these early primaries. Uh, and, and it's one that he's a candidate to watch uh, for that very reason, especially also on the issue of abortion. Uh, Donald Trump could be vulnerable in a primary because he has made numerous comments that even though he appointed the judges who overturned Roe v. Wade, he doesn't necessarily support some of the regulations on abortion in, in, in states, including the Florida six-week ban. And right. that could leave him vulnerable to someone like Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, who have taken uh, more conservative views, or at least done more conservative things on that uh, on the abortion issue, uh, and, and, and could certainly draw a contrast in a campaign for that. Yeah, but then they get to... <laughs> that's, that's the 
the hair that needs to be split, right? Because then if they make it through the hurdle of the nomination process, um, and it looks like that's the long game that Trump is playing on this right now, he doesn't want to be too far to the right on the abortion issue to win a national election. That's the irony that Trump is actually positioning himself as the more electable candidate in a general election, even as, as we just discussed, Ron DeSantis is trying to make that very argument as well for other reasons. So that's going to be a big test for for Republican primary. So is there any because anything can happen? And when you look back at we're 18 months out at this point from the presidential election, but obviously shorter than that from finding the nominees in both sides. But at this point, Hillary Clinton was in the lead. Jeb Bush was in the lead. Rudy Giuliani was in the lead. Is there a a dark horse candidate that you see out there? I would say Tim Scott uh, could be that that candidate. The the South Carolina senator has a very conservative voting record. He's well-liked among uh, all factions of the Republican Party. Um, he's got money. He's got a, both a super PAC that's well-funded, and his uh, Senate campaign account is is fully stocked at about $20 million, if I'm not mistaken, in, in campaign funds. So, mm-hmm. he, you know, look, I, I think he's an underdog, and he's you look at the polls, he's not registering much beyond 2 or 3%, but he's someone to watch as a wild card, and he's going to have his chance in the spotlight coming up soon. Do you think Youngkin gets in? So Youngkin is an interesting uh, figure in that I, I think he's watching what's going on. I mean, everything that I've heard from the Youngkin operation is like he's not running right now, but let's right. say Donald Trump looks like he can't win an election, and Ron DeSantis doesn't catch fire and no one else looks like a reasonable alternative. You know, Governor Youngkin has a profile, a really attractive profile, and also money. He has uh, he can he can wait and, and, and spend his own money to run a presidential campaign. So everything I hear, I, I think it's less likely that he runs. But if the scenario presents itself for someone like that to jump in and maybe catch a head of steam, he, he he's one to watch. OK, so let, let's talk about the other side of the equation for a minute. President Biden said he wanted to be a bridge to the future. And at that point in the last presidential campaign, it sounded like that might mean that he was going to hopefully serve for four years if he was elected and then turn it over to someone. But the person who he probably had expected to turn it over to, the vice president, Kamala Harris, is very weak politically. You know, what what do you think goes? Do, do you think that Joe Biden goes the distance and is the nominee on the Democrat side? I think that's more likely than not. But at his age, you know, he's already 80 years old. He'd be 86 at the end of his second term. That's a real challenge. And uh, any health issue is going to be a huge problem for for, for the president, uh, even even a small one. You know, look, the, the, the Democrats, I think they, they feel like they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Where look, if Biden decided not to run for reelection, all of a sudden you'd have a Harris, you know, emerging as a front runner. There's a lot of worry about her ability, as we've discussed in the past, uh, Martha. Mm-hmm. And then you'd also have a very messy civil war, really, between the between the progressives and the moderates, between Kamala Harris and, and other candidates. They, they know what they got with Biden. They know that he's not going to be the most energetic candidate on the campaign trail. They know there's going to be questions about his age and his health. But they think that so sort of the devil they know, the, the vulnerabilities they know are better than the other alternative, which could be an even weaker candidate or a division within the party itself. But do you get the sense that they have any plan B, that they're thinking about that or anybody is preparing a potential, you know, sort of riding on a horse no, to save no the day? There's no, no plan B. They're, they're putting all their chips in the Biden basket. And if, if 
if there's any plan B, it's Kamala, Kamala Harris. I mean, look at that video that Biden did to announce his reelection. Yes. Uh, there's been a lot of griping about Kamala Harris, but boy, she was front and center. In she a was whole hugging lot of Jill, Jill Biden a lot in that video. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was. Look, they, they've undermined their own own VP for good reason. Like they, she has not performed well in office. Mm. But now they realize that's that's the person they picked. And they they all they also realize that if they if they pushed her aside, that would also create a messier process than if they, you know, think going forward with her and, and, and working to, to mitigate the challenges ahead. Well, um, Josh, thank you. It, it's always great to talk to you. I hope you'll um, make some time for us as we move through this process and hop on now and then when you can. Uh, everybody follows you on Twitter um, at Josh Kroshauer and uh, watches and reads um, with great interest. So thank you very much, Josh. Thanks, Martha. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.